Welcome to the Love Good Podcast brought to you by our patrons. This is Jimmy Mitchell, your host. Join me each week as I sit down with artists and thought leaders to chat about music, culture, and what we call the art of being human. You see, Love Good's more than a subscription company, all right? We're a movement of everyday folks like you and me who are letting beauty break through the noise so it can transform our culture from the inside out. Thanks for joining me this week. I'm so pumped you're here. What's up, y'all? Can you believe it? We are landing the plane on our five-week series all about G.K. Chesterton's perennial work called Orthodoxy. I've been sitting down with Jason Craig every single week. He's a husband, father, homesteader, scholar, runs an amazing organization called Fraternus, and he is one of my oldest friends, certainly one of my oldest intellectual friends. What I mean by that is uh, we don't just enjoy like you know drinking beer and smoking cigars and talking about the faith, although that is pretty at the heart of our friendship. I must say one of the things that's unique about Jason is you can always enter into what I would call intellectual leisure with him, which you might even call festivity, where you just talk about the big stuff, the big stuff of life, where you read the good books and you pursue the good life together. And it's just been an absolute privilege getting to share his incredible boldness and brilliance with all of you here on the Love Good Podcast. Uh, Stay tuned because at the end of this episode, I've got a super exciting announcement about next week's episode that is going to blow your mind. Okay, so get ready for that. Get excited about that and sit back as I enjoy one final episode here with Jason Craig. It's all about understanding the providence of place, the the, the fact that, yeah, we want to have our head in the heavens to an extent. We want to constantly cultivate that childlike imagination, but we've got to have our feet firmly planted on the ground in the concrete circumstances of our life and the, and the realities and even the duties of our day-to-day callings. And that's a really exciting and at times difficult thing to consider. All that being said, I'll be back with Jason in just a moment. For now, enjoy this beautiful single from Michelle Mandico. It's called Give It Up. It's actually off of her 2015 EP called Half Captive. If you want beef, then bring the ruckus. Wuhan virus ain't nothing. (sighs) (laughs) Jason Craig, welcome back. Welcome back. What a joy. This is the the last in a four or five part series on orthodoxy and Chesterton, our dear friend who was known as the prophet of common sense, sense, but also the prophet of mirth. Even the prophet of girth, depending on who you (laughs) ask. Funny. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but we're not at the end of the book. No. So- Interesting though, we are at a uh, pivotal point yes. in the book. I mean, he's shown so far that there's a lunacy, an idiocy, a uh, insanity 
in trying to reduce the world to reason alone. Mm-hmm. And that reason is a great stepping stone towards more, which is not against reason, but supra reason, right? It's above, above, yeah. above it. And then, but then he takes us into fairyland, right? In the last chapter, which seems <clears throat> strange and ridiculous, but then he shows that there's this existence, our existence with its tradition and mm-hmm. its fairy tales mm-hmm. is pregnant with truth in a way that we have to learn to recognize and perceive and not grow tired or old yeah. or stagnant or yeah. Well, blurry. I'm so glad you brought that up because that's the eternal appetite of infancy that yeah. Chesterton coined. I don't think anyone's ever said that before. No, it's definitely Chestertonian. It's right here at the end of our previous chapter, which I think is Ethics of Elfland, because we're about to move into the flag of the world, which is chapter five. So this is towards the end of chapter four. He says, children have a bounding vitality. Now, Jason, mm. this is my favorite Chesterton quote, and there's a lot, but this is my favorite in all of his writings. Really? Right here. I see your book has two stars. Two stars. Next. It's earmarked. Let's go. Because children have a bounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown up person does it again until he's nearly dead. For grown up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony, but perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It's possible for God to say every morning, do it again to the sun and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy for we have sinned and grown old and our father in heaven is younger than us. Hmm. That's what that image, that exchange right here reminds me of. Hmm. This eternal appetite for infancy. I mean, Chesterton really never grew out of that childlike right. joy. And, and theologically, it, hope and despair, hope is the youthful, despair is the yes. aged. And we have to remember, we, mm. we very much treasure, of course, the wisdom that only comes from age and experience. <clears throat> yeah. But to grow old in the sense of growing towards death is not something we have to settle in yeah. to accept because we believe in the resurrection of the body. Yes. We believe in something more and beyond and that I don't know if you've met these people I have where they're very elderly and just full of life oh man but then there's also young people not the same as an old soul meaning they have wisdom perhaps prematurely but where they're just old in their thought yeah and they become and life itself becomes the drudgery that we that we see in an old body yeah they have it in their soul meaning it's unable to move and leap and dance and love. Yeah. And they've grown tired. Yeah. Young. It's always a tragedy. I mean, you can see when the light has gone Elderly off. soul. And not yeah. old soul, elderly soul. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it's a problem. It's like a light has gone off in their eyes, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. But you meet somebody, you know, I can think of a few of my heroes and mentors here in Nashville. They've got a fire in their eyes. Fire in their well belly. Their Tom Wynn calls it fire in the oh, belly. <laughs> I love that. I love that. You know, a twinkle in their eyes, a fire in their belly a joy because they've got one foot, you know, on earth and one the other foot in heaven. Right. Okay. So then that's the next chapter. Yeah. He puts your foot back on earth. Yeah. I think this, I think for us Americans, actually, this will be a unique chapter because, so Chesterton doesn't go into this, but this is in my imagination as someone who, who enjoys the debates of the Southern agrarians. We're in Tennessee. Are you familiar at all with them? 
The Southern uh, Agrarians? I've heard of this. Okay, so Didn't it's Chef a group. Didn't come over at one point and even speak in Nashville well, about some of these things? Yes, and he actually reviewed their great work. Yeah. Or some of their great works. And he, because he saw it as an extension of what they were doing in England under the mm. title of distributism. Right, right. Was the Southern Agrarians. And in our day, the only major champion that's well-known would be Wendell Berry, who is... People call him the best Thomas who's never read Thomas. Crazy. That we have. And it's rooted in his realism, which is rooted in this next one, the flag of the world. Right. Even that word realism is so important because he says it's not the fanatical pessimist or the fanatical optimist, right? Both of those extremes always fail. It's the irrational optimist who succeeds. Hmm. Which I think is the realist. The realist. With hope. Right. Right. So the realist is basically receiving the world as it is without right. trying to force it into yeah. <clears throat> something. And part of receiving the world as it is, is receiving the world where you are. And that's this next chapter, which is interesting. You know, it puts you in Elfland, but then we land safely back on Earth. Mm-hmm. And so to put this in our American context, and again, I'm speaking obviously favorable of the Southern agrarian tradition, which is we lose when we forget that we're the United States and this is not just like states' rights, federal government issues, but when we fail to love the place where we are, yeah, where we become disconnected from a place, mm. and then all we really want to do after that is land, but we live in the, the sort of cosmopolitan, I'm detached from the world in a way where I'm floating like a balloon yeah. in the wind. I don't know where to land. Wandering. And the, the, the great, you know, the Southern agrarian tradition, which Chesterton was clearly favorable towards, he understood and he, this, I would say this chapter is his English version of that, is we all, he says it right here, a man belongs to this world before he begins to ask if it is nice to belong to it. Mm. And then later, and this is chapter, page 81, he has a loyalty long before he has any admiration, meaning just as we've received the great intellectual, spiritual tradition that surrounds us, Right, we didn't. We we all believe the myth that we've reasoned to all of our intuitions and instincts. We haven't. We've been formed. Tradition, as he calls it earlier, the democracy of the dead. The democracy of the dead. Right. That we also have a place where God has placed us, Mm. and that that's meaningful. We have literally promoted incessantly the opposite, Mm. which is how many stories begin with you need to leave home to find who you are. Mm. Like how many people are told, go to college to find out who you are, Ugh, yeah. which is a cruel, terrible thing to say. Yeah, That where you came from is where you are. Mm. And as we talked about in the last one, in the fairy tale, they go off to have their adventure so that they can come home. Right. right? The hero's journey, I see it up on your yeah. shelf. The famous, the story that resonates the most with us, you know, that you can't have a good story without this, typically ends back home. Yeah. Right, but you're changed, but you're back home. Lord of the Rings being the classic example. Right. And you come back, you're changed, and no one really gets it. <laughs> That's right. You know? Right, right. And you go out and your adventure is ultimately to save what? Middle Earth? Home. Home. Right, he's protecting the Shire. Yeah. And Belloc is seeing, you know, in later characters, we would see that he doesn't know yet that Nietzsche, who he's talking about often— will very easily become Nazism mm. later. He doesn't know the dangers. You said Belloc, you mean Chesterton. Yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah. sorry. Like, okay, Ooh. well, you're smart and everything <laughs> and uh, cross- Yeah, Belloc is, Hilaire Belloc is yeah. a friend of Chesterton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Have you ever, there's a poem, it's, it's a little poem, again, sorry, John Senior, but it's a poem about Chesterton and Hellar Belloc's names. And, <laughs> and anyway, we're Chesterton or Chesterton? I don't know. Anyway, I, you need to, the poem, I'm going to send it to you and you can make it a, a, an add-on to your Perfect. download. Sorry, back to this. He talks about to to love the place you are is actually natural. You mm. begin immediately having a loyalty to where yeah. you are and that the love of man is what makes our place great. So yeah. a lot of us, and to contrast this with kind of two versions of America that are actually at war right now, right now is whether America is an ideal that we should that we should enshrine and maybe even export in some sort of imperialistic liberation of the whole world so that they can essentially be America and be mm. free to eat as much McDonald's as we are. <laughs> or so is an American idea, <laughs> or is it a place? And very much the this the Southern tradition is how crazy it would be to not love your place and then to love an idea that you think you can impose on another place that you don't have an affection for. Mm, mm. And to, when you don't have an affection for the place, you can't truly conserve, preserve, and love it, right? Yeah. So the things that build great empires and great places are actually not the love of the empire, the idea. <laughs> so he says this, or, or let me read this is and and why we love stuff so we don't we don't love the ugliness of a thing although we might be familiar with the ugliness of it we love we love the place because that's where we're from the only way out of it is to seem of, of despairing of where we are this is page 82 it's to seem to be for someone to love pimlico to love it with a transcendental tie and without any earthly reason by the way i, I looked up pimlico because i was i don't know what that is and interestingly it was a lower kind of slummy neighborhood in the time of Chesterton. But now it is a place that's very bourgeoisie and very nice and all this stuff. So <laughs> apparently someone did love it or had enough money to make it look loved. If there arose a man who loved Pimlico, then Pimlico would rise into ivory towers and golden pinnacles. Pimlico would attire herself as a woman does when she is loved. For decoration is not given to hide horrible things, but to decorate things already adorable. A mother does not give her child a blue bow because he is so ugly without it. A lover does not give a girl a necklace to hide her neck. <laughs> if men loved Pimlico as mothers love children arbitrarily because it is theirs, Pimlico in a year or two might be fairer than Florence. Some readers will say that this is mere fantasy. I answer that this is the actual history of mankind. Mm. So he's very much getting into something that's hard for us to imagine because we're so dislodged from any place. Dislocated, and it's yeah. Dislocated. He goes on, people first paid, but you need to have this because people first paid honor to a spot and afterward gained glory for it. Mm. What we want to do, and I get this a lot because I live on the land in a place. They have an idea of what a Catholic place should look like or a place of good culture. And they want to gather people around and then they want to pick a spot and make it happen, right? <laughs> and if I had a nickel for every time someone had an idea because they know that maybe we're farming and stuff, that they're going to buy a big piece of land because they have more money than we do. And then they're going to have people like me come and farm it. And they'll give us the great gift of managing <laughs> the farm. <laughs> I get that all the time because all you really need for good culture is management, oh. right? <laughs> no, men did not love Rome because she was great. She was great because they had loved her. Mm. And what's interesting, so am I, I'm literally the, 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 the terrible ideal of so rooted. It was great difficulty I came here to visit you because mm -hmm. I have 
a number of children, mm-hmm. and I have milk cows. So milk cows have to be milked every day, twice a day, yeah. no matter what, Christmas, Easter, Sunday, it doesn't matter. I literally can't leave. Mm. The only reason I'm here is because my nine-year-old son, Henry, has been now he's now able to run the barn mm. by, my, by himself, which is a huge gift. And he's been kicked in the forehead by cows. He can take it. He's, <laughs> but the thing that, ha- you know what happens to us all the time is young adults show up at our farm in a metaphysical despair, asking what they should do with their life and where they should go. Why are they coming to someone who can't go anywhere? Mm. Why do they come to our farm to ask me where they should go? Mm. And what they're really asking is, where can I belong Where can I be bound to? Because when I'm not bound to a place with love, I'm not free. Yeah. So there's this great myth that if we're unbound, we're free. Mm -hmm. But people are looking to be bound. And he actually connects it, doesn't he, to marriage. Love is not blind. That is the last thing that love is. Love is bound. And the more it is bound, the less it is blind. Oh, I love that. Right. So Love is not blind, it is bound. I'm a husband. Do you know where the word husband comes from? Husbandry. Yeah. Do you know where that comes from? The land? Housebound. Housebound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So am I not the most unfree man? So why do yeah. people come, you know, to ask advice in that? And that this is not my ideal imposed. We actually discovered it by accident by mm. having kids and getting milk cows and now not being able to leave. Yeah. Right. So, so this is interesting because this is where our lives are obviously very different. We're bound in a totally different way. We're in yeah. Corona cold. I yeah. mean, coronavirus time. And... I'm more bound than ever before. I'm used to being gone half of the month, traveling, globe trotting, speaking, mm-hmm. accompanying young people. Like it's such a joy being in the trenches of the the new evangelization, and that's what so much of the last ten years have felt like for me. As long as we've known each other, that's been my mo. Right, it's where I want to be. You right. know, but suddenly there's a whole new understanding of place, belonging, membership, mm-hmm. family, community, and for me, a little bit of a uprooting of all of that, uh, mm-hmm. an opportunity to not rediscern, but to to yet again approach God asking for some answers to, to those questions. You. Yeah. No, you don't want answers. You want to be where I, I want to be bound. Yeah. And 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 yet right here, what Chesterton says still speaks really deeply to me that we still have to heartily hate and heartily love the world, right? That we want deeply a fiercer delight and a fiercer discontent to feel the universe at once as an ogre's castle to be stormed and yet as our own cottage to which we can return at evening. In some ways, that kind of describes my love for Nashville. You yeah. know, I'm always ready. Your irrational love for Nashville. Yeah, it's irrational, but it's, man, it's, <laughs> it's, true. it's consistent. Yeah, I, I know it to and be it true. And it runs deep. And it's like you said about Rome. Like, I don't know that I can really pinpoint what makes Nashville great. Like, is it our hot chicken? Is it Jack Daniels? Is it our live music? 200 live shows a night? Well, not right now. Yeah. yeah. And yet I still love it. Right. And it's, Nashville's great because, because she is loved. Right. You know? And it's a place. And, and the world is sort of something to be, you know, passionately loving and yet passionately reforming all at the same time. You know? I'm not even sure if I'm quite saying that in a Chestertonian way. No, no. But this think, desire to storm the no, castle. No, you're not that good. No, you're not. You know? <laughs> and yet to also be at home in the cottage. Right. All in the same place. And the, the great danger. So the great thrill of that is it makes your land worth fighting for. That's right? right. That's right. But that's not the same. When we have an ideal, we are willing to do crazy violence and not in defense of something, but in a conquering of other places. Yeah, interesting. Right? So this is, Chesterton is perceiving the danger of loving 
basically what we would say, the, 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 maybe we would call it fanaticism for or, an idea. Well, yeah, or even like nationalism as it took mm-hmm. root in Germany right. 20, 30 well, years later. He's foretelling that. I mean, yeah. he's seeing that, yeah. that the desire to now take this ideal and impose it in, in this, we saw it in communism, mm. willing to, dis- and, and we've seen it in, in Western capitalism as well, the willingness to destroy a place mm. for the sake of your ideal. Yeah. So a great example, it's easy. We, we have no problem discussing communism because it's fallen and it's not a imminent threat. Although, you know, I guess the, the China virus <laughs> from communist China maybe changes our understanding of that. But we, you know, we saw communism freely destroying places to make them like their ideal that they believed in, right? Mm. So the danger of the zeal and of escaping a place and in mm. them. But, you know, we have the language in kind of more right-wing politics and capitalism of creative destruction, that in order to create something new, you have to destroy hmm. what was there in old. And obviously in some cases, you know, if you need to build a new home, sometimes you have to tear one down. <clears throat> but what if that's grandpa's home and it's gotten this meaning? But the way it's come to mean, what it's come to mean to us now, and now we're on the other side of it in a certain way, is we saw industrialism sweep through the world and destroy local economies. And we thought, well, that's good because it's bringing us prosperity and money in the middle class. Then we experienced the the removal of the middle class by exporting mm-hmm. industrial to cheaper labor in other countries. And now those places are left with the void of not having other, their place was destroyed. Yeah. And their means of comfort, i.e. their good job, is now gone. And then we have this epidemic of the opioid crisis mm. because of the despair that these people, now they have no jobs, they have they have nothing because their local culture is gone. Mm. And I think soon we're going to experience, and maybe already, in the economic fallout, of this. fallout yeah. is that we're going to learn, you know, we've been told you can be liberated from your place and, and the work can be mechanized and don't worry there's other industries you can go and you can go in the information technology and all that stuff but very soon i think we're going to come to the realization if it can be done on a wire cheaper in india which we're already you know the whole joke about customer service we've been telling our kids do coding do computers you, you tell me that can't now be exported even easier than a factory was yeah so all of this is now we're dislodged from place mm. and i think in the the interesting thing is local farms experienced in the coronavirus is that people really love having their chicken cheap, <laughs> but now the chicken's unavailable and they're really glad there's a farmer down the road yeah. that still has chickens. Yeah. And he probably doesn't have enough for all you people now, but there's something now that we're getting into this, <clears throat> the low culture stuff, these basics of humanity, food, shelter, clothing, but that's what culture is. Yeah. What is culture besides food, shelter, clothing? And then we add dance and music and all those mm. things. But it, it's, come, it's from the ground up, literally. Right. So Chesterton's trying to say, as, as Wendell Berry says it, you know, he, he defends the land he stands on. Yeah. And, and not because he's insular, but because that's, we have to begin there. And that's it. Begin in an ideal. Yeah. You, you're in the danger of, by violence. That's right. Whether it's intellectual violence or physical violence disregarding and, and dislodging someone else because mm. you're dislodged. And that's the danger, I think, of living in a city. Mm. And I'm the first to admit that, you know, living in a concrete jungle, being disconnected from the land, it does a number to your psyche. Mm-hmm. It certainly does a number to your spiritual life, to your understanding of what it means to be human, to belong, you know, especially when you're 10 minutes from an international airport. I can more easily hop on a plane and get to London 
than to go and visit my sister on the West Coast. <laughs> you know, it's faster, mm. it's direct. Right. And it's literally 10 minutes away. Wow. Um, that's a strange, beautiful, kind of liberating reality, seemingly, until in my case, it, it became a bit of an idol over right. the last five or six years. I was always chomping at the bit for the next adventure. Right. But again, it's this constant coming back. You want to go home now. Yeah. And that's yeah. really what this taps into for me is the infinite desire hmm. for home. The homesickness that I feel day in and day out, anytime I'm encountering beauty, anytime I'm encountering reality, catching a little foretaste of heaven. Right. You know? Right. And that to me is- In the place where you are. And you don't have to even understand, you know, every page or perhaps much more than the first page of the catechism to to grasp this. Mm -hmm. I mean, Chesterton at this point in orthodoxy, he is moving towards faith. I mean, he's on this intellectual journey with us. But he's still pretty far from the Apostles' Creed. This is only yeah. chapter four, chapter five. Right. And he's talking about fairies and land and patriotism. But right. all of this is so human. Right. And so at the heart of what we all need and, and desire and the deepest parts of who we are, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. And he gets in later. He talks about these, why he clumsily fell backwards into orthodoxy. Yeah. Because yeah. he realized only in orthodoxy can you have the, for example, love and hate Yes, of the place, that's right? right? To both love the world because it's worthy of redeem, redeeming and to hate the world because it threatens your redemption. Mm. You know, these paradoxes. That you or that's me, man. That. <laughs> but it's from reading a lot of Cheshire. I read it on a fortune cookie from China. <laughs> um, but he, he's, uh, he's going to go from here into the absolute coherence and sanity, sanity of the faith yeah. and how it is literally the only thing that is able to hold these things in tension mm. without them snapping, right? Yeah. With the necessity of the, 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 the pacifist monk and the warrior crusader yeah. and their coherence within the faith is something that he sees it's only actually held in tension, mm. which is, you know, the church <clears throat> battles heresy and people see that as the the suppression of thought, but it, he, he makes the case that no, all of these things from, from elf land into the actual land where we live, what Christianity knows is that if you get one of these things off balance, mm. that it tumbles, not because yes, not because it's an error, right? I mean, not not because it threatens something that's false that we have to protect, but because the error literally will. These things need to be held in tension and you're going to cut them in two. Yeah. You know, and, and you don't perceive that. Yeah. <clears throat> he, he even talks about the infinity of angles by which one can fall. Right. You know, <laughs> to stand up straight is no small miracle. Right. You know? Right. Because a heresy is not, when we saw my heresy, it, it's not as if it's a complete falsehood that must be suppressed because it threatens what we think is true, mm -hmm. it's actually something that's most likely true at its core that's being exaggerated so that it crushes other things that are true. Yeah. So it'd be very much like my children that I have to mm -hmm. love them all equally and differently in attention of the home. But if one of them becomes a terror to all the rest, I must put him in check mm -hmm. or he has the potential to destroy the whole. That's right. So a heresy, it, it wouldn't be attractive if it wasn't something true in it. Yeah. There has to be something true in it or no one would even bite the That's hook, right. That's right? right? So it has to be this great exaggeration. Mm. So this is that, when it, this is why the launching pad for the rest of orthodoxy started in the imagination and you got your head right. Yeah. Put you, put you square in the place where you are. That's right. And now you can love the world. Because yeah. even when we talk about a new evangelization, we talk about 
loving the world and the you know the name of Christ, all these things. That means actually that means actual stuff. Yeah. Catholicism, orthodoxy is stuff. It's not just sentimentality. Right. It's not even feed the poor. It's feed Steve. Yeah. Right. It becomes this not love all mankind, love your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Like this, your neighbor, neighbor. Like your neighbor, neighbor. Yeah. I wrote an article once that was like, you know, Jesus is my neighbor and he's really annoying. Right. Because I have these very needy neighbors. <laughs> I, I read that article. <laughs> I have these very needy neighbors around me. And it, and uh, Chesterton says, not in this book, somewhere else, but, you know, Jesus says to love your enemy and your neighbor because they're often the same person. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah that the practicality of Christianity is amazing and beautiful in its adventure. And it's so imminent, it's uncomfortable. Mm. It's much easier when it's an idea. It's much, and this, this is why not only we could we equate something idealism to like Nazi Germany, yeah. but also the freaking internet, you mm-hmm. know, where you go to go on a crusade daily in com boxes. Mm-hmm. That's kind of pointless and somewhat violent yeah. while your neighbor is cold yeah. and shivering. Yeah. And, needing some land to stay on, stand on in a blanket, mm. right? And again, so easy to slip into the the fantasy or the complete disembodiment and dismemberment, right? Of a life behind screens. Yeah. Very, or, very tempting. In or these on times. an airplane. Or on an airplane. So I would like to close with the very end of chapter six, which is just a little taste of what's coming. Right. Because we've set the stage. We've hopefully inspired now millions of people <laughs> at home <laughs> to pick up their copies of, well, the Love Good Edition of Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton. It's ideal. Join lovegood.com or Sword and Spade. Sword and Spade.com. The Sword and Spade. The Sword and Spade.com. But you know, what's so great about these conversations, Jason, is, is neither of us are experts. That was mm-hmm. never the point. We were never in an ivory tower claiming to be Chestertonian experts <laughs> or masters, but but simply friends who care right. about what is true, good, and beautiful, engaging in, you know, hopefully at times very delightful and engaging, but mostly like pretty serious conversation about what it means to be human. Right. And right here, you see this pivot point, as you put it earlier, from wonder, awe, imagination, Elfland, earth, membership, belonging, into the beginning of the Christian creed. And he says, referencing many things we've already covered in the last several weeks together, he says, it is easy to be a madman. It is easy to be a heretic. It's always easy to let the age have its head. The difficult thing is to keep one's own. It's always easy to be a modernist. It's easy to be a snob. To have fallen into any of those open traps of error and exaggeration, which fashion after fashion and sect after sect set along the historic path of Christendom, that would have been simple. It's always simple to fall. Here we go. There are an infinity of angles at which one falls, but only one at which one stands. To have fallen into any one of the fads from Gnosticism to Christian science would indeed have been obvious and tame, but to have avoided them all has been one whirling adventure. (laughs) And in my vision, the heavenly chariot flies thundering through the ages, the dull heresies sprawling and prostrate, the wild truth reeling but erect. How did he write this even before he was- no idea. But what I will say is, I hope this is the first of many series to come with Jason Craig. My, my friend, my brother of 12 years. 12 years. And more than even our, our common love for the church, all of that's the deepest and most common of loves probably right. uh, for the Lord and for his church. The work that we've done together in organizations like Fraternus, it's always been this pursuit of truth, this this love for beauty and this desire to to live the good life that I think has kept us most closely bonded. So And free lunches. And yeah, I did take you to a really, really good lunch, lunch today. That was, good. that was a club sub like none other. 
Yeah. Gluten-free, sweetie. It was gluten-free, sweetie. Definitely not gluten-free. <laughs> yeah. All right, Jason, until our next, man. All right. Thanks, Jimmy. Peace. Sometimes I wish that I could just turn back. I miss tea by the fire and soft green grass. But some deeper part inside of my soul is keeping me on this road. You're listening to Homeland, which is track one off of Marie Miller's brand new album called Little Dreams. Go check it out. It's available everywhere. Digital music can be streamed. You can probably imagine why I chose that song, Homeland. Not only because it has everything to do with our podcast episode today with Jason Craig, thinking about providence of place, but also because we're about to release a Love Good exclusive version of that song on Friday of this week. If you're not subscribed to our YouTube channel, today's the day because you don't want to miss the premiere of Homeland that was recorded quite literally above the Love Good studio in my living room probably about a year ago now. And it's just beautiful. Acoustic, Marie Miller doing her thing, that beautiful song, Homeland. And as I mentioned, this is the end of our five-week series with Jason Craig. And this is now the moment where I get to tell you what's going to happen next week. Next week is not quite season four of the podcast, okay? Just go ahead and hold your breath on that one. And that day will come soon. But next week, believe it or not, drum roll, please. It's the 100th episode of the Love Good Podcast. Can you believe that? We launched this thing three years ago, all right? And we had season one with Janae Trudell, some bonus episodes before we led into season two with Alana Boudreaux, a few more bonus episodes that led into season three, all right? With with not co-hosts, but rather contributors this time around, Father Ryan Adorjan and Dr. Ryan Hanning, and countless artists' interviews and conversations with thought leaders in between. This is the first time we've ever done a book series, which we're super excited about. It's been so fun, and it sounds like, for all of you, incredibly fruitful as well. So we'll be doing more of these. Don't you worry about that. But next week, because it's our 100th episode, we're celebrating our patrons. You hear this every week. The Love Good Podcast is brought to you by our patrons. We cannot do this podcast without our patrons. We cannot do love good without our patrons. They are on the front lines of this movement. They're the ones constantly raising their standard for music, for books, for art, and ultimately building a better culture with their lives, with their witness, with the beauty of who they are. And so next week, I've got several of our patrons, about 10 to be precise, who are going to be a part of this episode, who are going to help us celebrate 100 episodes later, and most importantly, a movement, a community of artists, of young people, and of patrons who believe in the power of beauty to change the world. So tune in. This is going to be unlike any episode we've ever done here on the Love Good Podcast. Nothing but love and prayers to all of you from Nashville this week. Hope you're doing well, and we'll see you next time around. Peace. Peace. 
Massive thanks for tuning in to the Love Good Podcast. If you like this week's episode, and frankly, even if you didn't, share it on social media, leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and then join us on the front lines of building a better culture by subscribing as a patron at joinlovegood.com. Our patrons get all kinds of incredible exclusive content, such as a weekly long-form video of the podcast, a monthly live stream house concert with our artists, and a seasonal package that will raise your standard for music, books, and art forever. Thanks again for tuning in. It's an honor to accompany you as you change the world.